everyone. Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to College Worship. It's been a minute since I've had the opportunity and privilege to be with you in this capacity. Um, it's my sincere prayer this week and my hope for you that each of you are doing really well this evening. And that this week has not been too hard on you, at least not yet. I know it's early still. Um, and I'm really, really happy that you're here to encounter what I, what I pray, that we would have this encounter with the one true God alongside others who desire to step outside of themselves into the life that we're meant to live in Jesus. I'm excited tonight to wrap up our Better Together series where we've sought to highlight some spiritual truths from God's Word, the Bible, that teach us how we're to live this faith, life of faith with one another. We've discussed four questions so far regarding biblical community up to this point. We began by asking, what does it mean that we're better together? We looked at community as a gift, a display of affection for one another, and a display of affection for God, and a foretaste of eternity. We followed it up by exploring who is better together, and this allowed us to search the scriptures to discover what the church is according to Jesus, and who comprises the church. And over the last two weeks, we've asked how and when we are better together, and I think Allison and Jason did phenomenal jobs laying out for us practical steps of how we can engage in biblical community and how that can happen in our current setting or our current context and especially this season of life. They both made sure to emphasize that doing life together or experiencing biblical community can happen here and now and with those around us. So I want us If we can, let us show them a little love and express our gratitude for their preparation and faithfulness over the past two weeks. Would you join me? You guys, we love you and we appreciate you. (laughs) And tonight, I want us to wrap up in a practical fashion as well by unpacking this last question, why are we better together? Another way to ask this question would be, why do we need community at all? And my goal for us is to see why any of this matters for our daily lives, but from a biblical perspective. And so I want us to focus on three main points tonight that will hopefully help us answer the question of why we are better together. And to begin with, I want us to see that biblical community allows us to more fully experience Jesus this side of eternity. But before we dive in, would you pray with me one more time? Father, thank you for this moment. I ask God that we would pause yet again before you. Trusting that we are here for a purpose, according to your will. And again, God, we ask that you would speak. Make a way in the text that we cover. Make a way in this lesson. May your voice be heard. Please speak, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So that first point, biblical community allows us to more fully experience Jesus this side of eternity. You've heard me say numerous times, well, many of you, most of you in this room have heard me say numerous times, that one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel, one of the most attractive things about walking with Jesus is being known. 
Now, many of us have secrets and we have shameful things that we don't want people to know about us. So there's this part of us that when we hear that phrase, being known, we immediately tense up and we're like, "Eh, I don't know how how I feel about that. But there's also this deeper need and deep-seated part of us that knows what it would be like if we were known and still accepted. And that just calls to us. And I've shared this before because I think the gospel is part of that. The gospel is that for us. We can be known, we can be accepted, we can be forgiven, and the Lord wants us. And when I say this idea of being known, what I mean is that you and I tend to walk through this life so guarded, so guarded, especially if we don't know Jesus. We guard ourselves against being hurt. We guard ourselves from being known because we fear rejection. We hide areas of our lives or even our personalities, like our full personality, because we're afraid of what others may think or they might think that we're a little bit too much. And with that comes shame and guilt and the detrimental effects of a depleting sense of self-worth because we don't feel we measure up to those around us. However, the gospel This good news that Jesus is who he said he was, that he came and lived a perfect life, that he died a sin he did not deserve, but on our behalf. And that when he died, he conquered the effects of sin, which is death. And when he rose again, he nailed death to a cross and rose in victory. Because we, if we believe in him and trust in him, can have eternal life with him. That is the gospel. So when we use that word, that's what we mean. This gospel calls us to the source of our joy, the very source of restoration. It calls us to Jesus. And I want us to see an example of this playing out in Scripture. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 4. As always, if you need a physical copy of God's Word, I would love to give you one. Please come see me afterward tonight. However, we of course encourage you to use whatever copy you have with you, whether that be physical or digital, or if you follow along on the screen. But hear now the word of the Lord according to the Apostle John. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had traveled through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be, get thirsty again. In fact, the water will give him, that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Which most of us would assume we would not approach Jesus that way, right? Just throwing that out there. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? If you're willing and able, when I say this is the word of the Lord, please respond, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This may be a familiar account for many of us here tonight, but I'm hoping that familiarity will not breed contempt or even apathy as we cover it briefly here, because I really want us to see what's happening here. This woman whose past is riddled with mistakes, improprieties, and complete disregard for the law, so much so that she is gathering water at the noonday hour to avoid running into anyone and having to face their scrutiny, she comes face to face with a stranger at a well. And it's not until she hears his voice and sits under his tutelage for a moment that she begins to wonder what he's about. And it's not until he reveals to her all that she has hidden from so many for so many years that she can ask the question, can this be the Messiah? Isn't it astounding that she desired to know him after he exposed her shame? Isn't it incredible that after he did, that exposure led to belief but not just an inner pondering of who he was, but an out loud, I can't help but share with everyone I come in contact with your reaction. Like she ran and told everybody. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to consider that once the Lord exposed her sin, that this woman felt free to experience his forgiveness. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know exactly what I'm talking about in that. And what is so counterintuitive for us is that we do our best to hide our sin, to keep hush-hush the darkness that dwells in those unexposed corners of our hearts and minds. But this woman rejoices in their discovery. And you can almost feel the weight of her secret shame being lifted as she recognizes to whom she's been speaking. She experiences Jesus in a way that I know each of us wishes we could, namely face-to-face, because I have a bajillion questions, and I know you do too. But this encounter can teach us something about the necessity of community for our spiritual well-being. Since Jesus' ascension, which is when he went into heaven in front of the disciples and saying, I will come again in victory, I will return in a very similar way, and the subsequent gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we, believers in Jesus, the church, experience communion with God differently than when Jesus walked the earth. There's no question about it. No, we cannot see Jesus face to face right now but we can experience what this woman experienced, just in a slightly different way. And I want us to realize that we experience more of Jesus, and please hear this, we experience more of Jesus when we are walking in fellowship with other believers than when we try to do this life of faith alone. Chelsea Code, a blogger I like, puts it very well when she states, Christ is manifested to us through relationship with other believers. 
through serving and ministry beside them, through our realization of how much we need to be seen and loved, and I would add known, I think that's on there, in our vulnerability, we are reminded of how much we must rely on the body of Christ and rely on Christ to be made whole. And that body of Christ is the church. We discussed that a few weeks ago. In our vulnerability, she says, we are reminded of how much we must rely on the body and rely on Christ to be made whole. Now, to be clear here, Chelsea is not suggesting that the church has anything to do with our personal salvation or that which makes us right with God. Only Christ can do that. But we can surely trust that the church is integral in every believer's maturation of faith, or is that big word we've been using, sanctification. It is very difficult for me to be sanctified if I'm a holy hermit. I can't live out in the woods on my own. Can't be Jeremiah Johnson. Anyone watch that movie? Seriously? Okay, thank you. You have a beard. It makes sense. You cannot escape the world and live this holy hermit lifestyle and expect to be shaped. A sword cannot be hewn or sharpened without being rubbed with friction. A stone cannot be shaped unless chiseled. There is a physical reaction that happens when friction meets a material. Am I right? So that takes two materials, at least. We cannot be on our own and think that we can be sanctified. As brothers and sisters in Jesus, you and I, we participate in each other's experience of Jesus. And some of you in that moment are like, well, crap, I don't even like these people. But then the other of you are like, man, I hope that they like me. But most of us in the middle realize that we take this for granted. But the truth is, is we get to participate in each other's experience of Jesus. And this is great news. Because I think many of us who are afraid of being open with other believers are worried about just bringing people down with what we're carrying, the baggage that we might have. And though that is a possibility at times, and I would say a brief one, because most people will help pick up versus be dragged down, we can also rejoice in the fact that we can work to build each other up and even show each other Jesus through our love and patience and our determination to see one another grow closer to the Lord. And this speaks to how you and I experience the freedom we have in Christ on a different level when we know that we are known and that we are also loved. And I would say it's also very difficult to know that I am loved unless there's someone communicating that to me, right? Especially when we know that we are known and loved in spite of our deficiencies. Because every one of us brings those to the table. And that, my friends, is the exact same freedom that allowed that Samaritan outcast to proclaim the name of Jesus to everyone she encountered. Notice, she did not hesitate. And it's exactly what the Apostle Paul means in Romans 8, verses 12 through 16, where he writes, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live and it continues, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Yet again, that language is very telling. It is very difficult to be part of a children if you're a singular child. It's also very difficult to be Walking and saying, Abba, Father, if I haven't been freed from something, recognize that he is the one that does this for me. 
And what's really interesting to me is when Paul writes these words, I think of this woman at the well because she has no spirit of slavery. She is not falling back into fear. Instead, she's crying through the streets, Abba, Father, come and speak to this one who told me everything I ever did. How is that for an ad for someone coming to like Jesus? Hey, he's going to expose all your darkest secrets. Come and enjoy it. That's not what we think of. But at the same time, when that is exposed, the burden is lifted. We no longer have to hide who we are or who we think we are. Instead, we get to walk in the identity that he tells us we have. That is the beauty of the gospel. So why are we better together? Well, it's because we help each other see Jesus. We help each other as we walk through life and share our burdens, understanding that our sin no longer enslaves us. We are not bound by that anymore. No longer does it bind us in the fear of rejection from our Father. Because again, if you were anything like me, when I was 16-year-old RJ, very awkward, I was still approaching the Lord as, did I do enough today to earn your favor? And what's really interesting, too, is in my life, I have two very loving parents. They never made me earn their favor. In fact, I often really tried to push them to where they would stop loving me. I don't know what it is about us that we rebel that way. So I had this really good earthly image of what it meant to be loved by a parent, yet I still approached God in that way of saying, did I do enough? Are you pleased? Don't hurt, right? I mean, it's just this idea that we can't help but have before holy God. But we are not to be rejected because Christ has made a way. So when we speak love and forgiveness into each other's lives, we are, through the Holy Spirit, helping one another to more fully experience Jesus. So when you're in your family group, and that person who may for the last three weeks have been having a pretty hard go of things comes and says, you know what, I've had another hard week, and you fight this temptation of groaning because you really don't want to hear their, you know, what, the depths of what they're going through again, remember this. Remember that we get to do this. We get to show each other Jesus. And at the same time, there's going to be that point where you do the same thing and you're going to want that person to say, let me show you Jesus. So why else is community necessary for believers? Well, not only do we more fully experience Jesus in community, but community challenges us to be more like Jesus. In his book, Wider Than Snow, Pastor and theologian Paul David Tripp writes this, We weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God, in a loving and humble interdependency with others. Our lives were designed to be community projects. I love that line. Yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all that we need within ourselves. So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual. We defend ourselves when the people around us point out a weakness or a wrong. We hold our struggles within, not taking advantage of the resources that God has given us. And the Bible speaks directly against that mindset. The Samaritan woman proclaims that Jesus called her out for her sins. She did not hide her brokenness from those she proclaimed Jesus to. In fact, she publicized, he told me everything I ever did. She leans into being known, and she leans into being forgiven by the only one who can redeem and forgive. I want us to listen again to what should be a now familiar passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke or stir up love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. And hear also what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And here's the kicker. To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. I'm going to stop there for now. From these passages, we can clearly see that gathering together for worship events like tonight is unquestionably for our good. But we must also recognize that we each need one another to grow up, into, grow up in every way into Jesus. This one-on-one pursuit is exactly what Jason touched on last week as he described our current season, regardless of which one we're in, as being useful for our pursuit of Christ and useful for others in their pursuit. Because when we're in community and pursuing Jesus together, we learn some valuable lessons. And I will walk through three very quick lessons with you. First, we learn how to be patiently forgiving. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 states, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on then compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. That's one of those where you're like, when you hear it, right? Right in the gut. And then in Ephesians 4, might as well keep the hits coming, Paul. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. I just want to point out one thing very quickly here. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Let all bitterness, malice, and wrath be removed from you. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think, but when you come to Christ, this is no longer your nature. Not truly. Do you struggle with it as an earthly being? Absolutely. But we can let it be gone because he removes it. He actively works in us in that way. So the flip side of this is, is there a part of us that clings to these things because it's what we know? Absolutely. So how do we combat that? Well, that's what we're here for with one another. We point each other to Jesus and say, let yourself be more like him. Pursue him. Let yourself release A, B, or C and be more like him. Secondly, we also learn that we are agents of healing through the Holy Spirit. In James chapter 5, we read, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's really interesting because you and I are invited into the healing process. I would say the physical at times, of course, but ultimately the the spiritual healing process where we're being more, more into his likeness. We're invited into the healing process of one another in Christ. How have you taken advantage of participating in this arena of the Christian life? How many of you are on the daily, not daily maybe, but weekly, willing to confess your sins to one another? Are we at a place where we're comfortable with one another in that sense? Because if we are, it's powerful. The Lord uses that and the prayer of righteous persons to bring about great works. Let us participate in that. 
Thirdly, we learn how to be more others-focused. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we read this, And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. And then in Philippians chapter 2, just two verses, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it follows by talking about how when we do that, we actually have the mind of Christ. We're putting that on. Now at this point, you may be wondering, how can all of this be achieved or even practiced in my life? I'm not capable of doing this. You cannot come to such a place of maturity of faith by merely attending college worship or life group on Sundays or family group or Sunday worship service. This level of devotion and maturity is the result of intentional discipleship, of inviting others into your life and saying, I want to do life with you, which means I want you to see some of the ugly. And we've discussed this a lot lately. But as a friend of mine once said, repetition is the price of memory. So how are we going to memorize this truth? Well, I'm hoping that you will take to heart how important discipleship relationships are. Not just for your own spiritual well-being, but for the development of deep, intentional community. How are you discipling others? How are you willing to be discipled? And Mike Breen, who is a missional community specialist as well as a discipleship specialist, writes in his book about missional communities. Discipleship is simply being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And we do this best in community, in relationship with people who are more like Jesus than we are. By learning from them, observing them, doing life with them, being involved in a highly challenging, highly encouraging relationship in which we can learn how to do the things that Jesus did by imitating the way of life in Christ of someone else. Then we invite others to imitate us as we imitate If we were to do a poll in this room right now, and we were to ask, how many of you feel qualified to say, follow me as I follow Christ? I doubt many of you would be like, I'm there. Look at me. At least I hope you wouldn't, because we know you're a liar. But at least at that point, we would know who's dishonest. But ultimately, we know that we'd never feel like we measure up in this. But that doesn't mean you can't ever be a Paul for someone. And it always speaks to the truth that we always need to be a Timothy for a Paul, meaning we need to be invested in, but there will always come a point in life where we will realize, you know, if we're progressing in Christ's likeness, there's going to be someone who is not quite where we are, and we get to invest right back in them and see them do the same thing. It's called reproduction. It's called discipleship. And we invite others to imitate us as we imitate Christ. This is the reality of community. This level of devotion and intentionality develops as we pursue Jesus together. And I do mean that, together. But we must be willing to cultivate it and not ignore it. So the question becomes for us, do I want to see these characteristics of Jesus developed in my life? To where I can say to someone, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Am I willing to ask that question every day of the Lord? Lord, I want to be more like you. Please bring this about in my life. Bring those into my life that can help me be there, but also bring those into my life that I can help be there. And a part of this is also not just confession, but accountability. Now, we toss that word around, but I don't know that we've spent as much time as we probably would have liked on it. But accountability is not merely saying, oh, well, did you do this A, B, or C this week? No? Great. Good job. 
No, it's knowing the struggles of someone so deeply that you can anticipate the need for an encouraging word because you have been exposed to the darkness in their life. You've been exposed to what Jesus has saved them from, but they still struggle with. And so that you can you send that random text that the Spirit leads you to, to send that says, hey, how are you today? Can I come see you? Do you want to hang out tonight? I feel like maybe we're supposed to hang out. Or being accountable to one another in the same way that where I'm like, hey, I'm being tempted right now in an area that I struggle with. I need to text someone that I trust so that they know and that they can say, don't do it, I'm coming right now. Or at least that they will know that I've struggled with it and they have permission to call me out on it. It changes us. We live in a culture where we are asked to hide. I don't know if you realize that. You probably do, at least at some level. The social media personas are glossed over. And we're either trying to live a life that is filtered or live a life that is posed. (laughs) And we think the filtered one is the most authentic because at least it lets some of the natural in. But when it's posed, we often compare ourselves to those situations, don't we? Man, look at that friend group. Look how happy they are. They must be really close. Man, look at the trips they take together. Look at the time they spend together. When really, it took them 15 times to get that picture just right. And they spent the entire time that they were at the botanical gardens posing for a picture, not really enjoying each other. You know it's real. You're laughing because you've done it. Right? I mean, we do it with our children. It's like, Merry Christmas, here's a Christmas card. When you get that one perfect picture, but all 75 other ones are like, ah! And everybody's like biting each other, pulling hair. And you're like, but look at our perfect family. It was on the card. That's what we do for social media. But accountability combats that. Because we're giving people permission to see the unfiltered. And the last way I want us to answer the question, why is life better together? is to recognize that community is not the great end goal of the Christian faith. Rather, biblical community is designed to encourage mission. And I know some of this has been touched on the last couple of weeks, but the truth is, this lies at the center of why we need to do Christian life together. And I want us to pause for a second to consider why God ever chose to call a people for himself at all. In the first third of Genesis, we read about the call of Abram and the promise of a nation. In Exodus, the story is elaborated upon as Moses is called and tasked with leading God's people out of bondage. But during that great drama, the Lord speaks to Moses in Exodus 19 and tells him that if Israel keeps the Lord's commandments, they will be his treasured people, but also a kingdom of priests. You see, the Lord has never chosen his people merely to set them apart without room for the outsider. There's always been an inroad for the outsider or the sojourner, the widow or the orphan. There's always been a passage into the kingdom of God for those not considered his chosen because his chosen were merely the beacon, the priesthood for those who could come to him. Israel was to be this hub, this beacon of God's truth on the earth in their time. These earthly mediators preaching the truth of God's existence and his great faithfulness. In other words, his people had a mission They were defined as a people, as an ethnos, a community, but tasked to utilize their status as his community for his glory. There was purpose. And the same sentiment is elaborated upon in the New Testament as the Apostle Peter extends the status of God's people to all of those who believe in Jesus for their salvation. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, Peter states that those who believe in Jesus were once not a people, 
but because of their faith, they are a people or they are a nation. All through his sacrifice and resurrection. But more than that, he calls them a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sounds familiar, right? It's exactly the language he used for the Israelites. Theologian Elmer Martin once wrote these words. He says, For Peter, the mighty act of God includes the shaping of a people, God's own people. But beyond this act of God, there is to follow an act of God's people, namely the witness of the redeemed to what God has done. It's what Peter describes as our privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called him out of darkness into marvelous light. And Dustin Willis of the North American Mission Board adds this, life on mission, which all believers are called to, is simply an overflow of living a cross-centered or a gospel-centered life. And living in biblical community is foundational to growing in the gospel. So we can see that community helps us grow into the call of the church to go and make disciples. And what's interesting to me is this call supersedes preference. This call supersedes pride. This is what community helps us with. It breaks down the remnants of self-centeredness and is used by the Lord to shape us more and more into his likeness. Because, again, if you're ever a part of a family, you remember what it's like to not get your way, right? And oftentimes, that's a mercy that you recognize much later in your life. I'm glad that they didn't let me do A, B, or C. I really wanted to do some really dumb crap when I was a kid. And my parents were like, no. And in hindsight, I'm like, good call. We do that for one another as well because we are family in Christ. And it supersedes our preference in the moment. It supersedes our pride in the moment when we think that we are right. Because community shapes us. It helps us. And it breaks down those remnants of self-centeredness. The community itself becomes one of our greatest tools for evangelism. And that's just a fancy word for us sharing our faith about the gospel. That Jesus is who he said he is. And that we have a way of salvation. So our community shapes and is one of our greatest tools for evangelism. And the point is that our relationships with one another are the greatest formative tools for sharing our faith well. Because if you can articulate the gospel to one another in moments of need, you can articulate the gospel to those out there who have never heard it before. Because there are times when applying the gospel is so much harder than introducing someone to the gospel. And the other part about this is we never have to stress our cultural relevance to impress those seeking the Lord if we're seeking to develop community with one another. Because true connection is attractive. And if we know the source of that connection, and we can share that source with someone else, I promise you they see that. So we need to pursue Jesus. We need to call upon his name and have his call upon us to love one another well fuel our mission. Because there is no greater nor, or more natural export from the church than those who would like to invite others in to what they've experienced through Jesus among the body of believers. So the Lord uses us in each other's lives to shape our witness and send us out. You know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier about the idea of this filtered mindset. Um, lately, there's, there was a McKinsey poll. They're kind of like Barna Group and others, research firms. A poll that was done about Gen Zers, iGen, your generation. Um, and how in community, we often have times where we don't allow that unfiltered aspect of our lives to shape us, where we only put up the faces and we only do this A, B, or C. But what was really interesting from the poll was that one thing that came to bear was that they really wanted connection. 
Gen Zers really want connection. They're very open to the spiritual realities of the world, but they want authenticity. But not just merely authenticity and belief or what conviction that you might have, but how it's borne out in action and how you actually interact with other people. So much an open door for the gospel. It's exactly an invitation. If your generation wants authentic community and wants to know what drives authentic community, how much of an opportunity do you have to be on mission in your communities with one another? To understand that you get to spur each other toward the gospel, preach the gospel to yourselves and one another each day and each time you meet, but then also extend the hand of the gospel to those around you. I just think that you are poised in such a way that is so incredibly purposefully strategic in the Lord's purposes. How are we utilizing our communities to invite people in to come face to face with the love of Christ? Are the communities we're involved in spurring us into mission? So why is life better together? Well, in summary, it's because Jesus has deemed it so. He's called us to himself and thus into each other's lives. He's set us apart for his great purposes and he's equipped us with the Holy Spirit and he's equipped us with one another. And this is that moment where I want to remind you that no matter what burdens you carry, no matter what baggage you have in your past, if you are a redeemed child of God through the sacrifice of Jesus, you have come to faith in him for your salvation. You are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are restored, and you have every qualification it takes to be in community with another believer. Some of you need to be reminded of that. And at times, your experiences, the shame that you have had to deal with, might be the very thing that someone else who is dealing with similar things needs to know to be welcomed in, to be invited in, to come to the one who can actually restore their soul. Don't discredit your life. Don't discount what you bring to the table when it comes to being in community with one another and what you offer to your family groups, what you offer to those who might want to disciple you or you disciple them, but especially what you might offer to the people that you come in contact with on campus or in the workplace. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Your identity rests in him. Your past is your past, but it might be a segue to where you can actually be approachable. You know, one of the main reasons that people don't want to come to church is they feel like they have to put on a mask or they have to be perfect. How incredible would it be if First College Ministry, everyone in this room and those that weren't able to make it tonight, decided to stop wearing the mask and started letting people in? That on a Sunday morning, we weren't like, hey, look at how I'm dressed to the nines, but like, hey, like I woke up late, my hair is a mess, and I'm wearing the jeans I wore last night. That's real, that's silly, but it's real. But you see what I'm saying. Allow yourself to be imperfect because we worship a perfect God. And allow his forgiveness to be the thing that other people see. Not cheapening grace, but showing them that grace is effective. Very true. Allow him to speak through you. So what I want us to do tonight is to recognize the privilege we have but also remember that it is a responsibility. So let's not leave tonight without vowing to at least give this a shot with one another. In a moment, we're gonna spend a couple of minutes in reflection, but before we do, would you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for this evening. Lord, I thank you that we have opportunity to walk in grace, that you have provided that through your son, Jesus.